listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda. Thanks for joining us. And I want to thank the Harris family for coming in today. I am in studio with four members of the Harris family, Waitrice, Daryl, Amari, and Amani, mom, dad, and the twin teenagers. And they are all very, very busy, involved, motivated. I can't throw enough laudative adjectives at them uh, for what they do for their community. All of you, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> so I guess I'll start with the biggest question, Watrice. We'll start with you as, as the mom. Uh, what do you see as the biggest? Well, tell me about life in your neighborhood, where you live, and what you see as the biggest needs there. Um, we live currently what would be called the Denby neighborhood um, on the east side of Detroit. Um, and we have a lot of needs. Um, and I think we all just take our different lanes trying to address those needs. So my lane is mostly in education. Um, and so part of the problem that we're having is that our schools, uh, we don't have good quality schools in every neighborhood. Um, and the schools that we do have, some of them aren't in good quality condition. Um, students have to walk through horrendous conditions to get to school um, because of blighted neighborhoods. And um, we just try to do everything that we can to address this on different levels. And Daryl Harris, dad, father, <laughs> Bishop Daryl Harris, uh, your, your wife tackles education in the family. What's your main focus? Wow. I guess I would be more on the uh, restorative uh, practice, restorative justice in the legal area. So I work with Ceasefire Detroit um, as faith-based coordinator and director. Uh, and also I'm a human rights commissioner for District 3 and work with closely with District 4. I think we could talk about any of those for <laughs> for the time we have left, but let me let me stick with you for a moment. Cease Project Ceasefire, what is that? So Ceasefire uh, is an initiative that works closely with the redevelopment of those who may be gang members or group members, specifically in the area of shooting crimes and gun crimes. Um, what we do is we host different events and our outreach team, we really reach out to try to take persons who may be in a gang and want to get out or in a group want to get out or are already facing some kind of particular gun crime. We take those individuals on and we try to work with them to get them the resources that they need in order to get them to put the guns down first and then secondarily to leave the group, to leave the gang and to thirdly start a new quality of life. Uh, we also deal with uh, victims as well um, to certain gun shootings. Uh, I was just at the hospital last night uh, with the family of the seven-year-old uh, who was shot last night on the east side of Detroit. And uh, largely that's our area. We live in that area. We live in that neighborhood. Uh, and so that's largely the work that we do. Conglomerate of law enforcement, uh, mayor's office, uh, chief of police, DPD, uh, pastor, conglomerate. There are just so many different components uh, that are to ceasefire, uh, but it's doing some good and we're glad about it. 
You mentioned some, when you say the work that we do, and you mentioned some of kind of the official people involved by their job titles, who else is involved in that we effort? So directly, I work with a team of outreach workers, Quincy, uh, Quincy Smith, who is the outreach uh, director. Uh, then we have George Ward, James Holmes, uh, Jermaine Tillman, and then on a broader scale as we reach out, again, we begin to talk about persons like Chief Craig, Commander Bettison, uh, Kelvin Mulcahy, Barbara McQuaid, uh, and then we go over to the service providers, which you may be looking at uh, Keith Bennett, Flip the Script, Goodwill, uh, Detroit Recovery Project, uh, and also um, Detroit Employment Solutions. Uh, these are just some of the direct partners that we work with, MDOC, um, Chris McGagnon, uh, and just a few others uh, who we work. I mean, we could list names. It's such a <laughs> right. large. Well, I, uh, right. And I, I mean, I was, I, I'm trying to get a, you know, your, your neighborhood. How do people become motivated to join this effort for you? Well, on the ceasefire uh, and the contingency really is to take our outreach team and connect directly with persons uh, as we respond to sometimes uh, unfortunately, these different crime scenes or whatnot, we begin to gather information. And also, we invite families in uh, who may have people who they're trying to get their sons, their daughters out of these groups, out of these gangs. And so as of late, we've been getting a lot of calls just independently from families saying, hey, my son was doing this. Is there a way you guys can help us out? I want you to talk about some of the successes you've had, and then I'll ask you about the challenges that remain. But let's let's hear some of the success stories you've got. Well, uh, many of the success stories, I'll just start uh, with the east side. So Ceasefire in Detroit started about three years ago in conglomerate here on the east side of Detroit in the 9th and 5th Precinct, uh, which is largely uh, the 48205 and the 48213 and 48224, all east side. Uh, since Ceasefire has been operating in the 9th and 5th Precinct when they were sharing uh, buildings together, um, non-fatals, we've seen a decrease in that over the last year of about 40%. And then fatals, we've seen a decrease about the same. Um, and so now the idea is to take ceasefire and go uh, across the city of Detroit. We've expanded to the west side as well, the 6th, the 8th, 12th precinct. Uh, and so the growth of it is going very fast. We have impacted so many different lives. We literally have gang members, ex-gang members rather, uh, group members, persons who have done shootings before and persons who were under federal indictment before to literally come into ceasefire and we've helped them to find housing, help them to find jobs, help them to do, uh, get resources that they need and we've seen a significant turnaround in their lives. Uh, and so we now are dealing with some of these ex-gang members who are learning restorative practice and restorative justice um, and being able to take that back to their crews or their ex-gang members or whatnot. And we're really beginning to see kind of an input in how that can impact just the change of mentality. Well, for anybody who looks at the crime numbers in Detroit, unfortunately, your work is not done. How are you addressing uh, the rest of it? I think that the move now is to, again, permeate the entire city of Detroit um, on all levels, not just on one particular level. Uh, and so what we're doing now is trying to expand on our outreach efforts, uh, which is to start including persons that may not necessarily be a part of Ceasefire, but really building those relationships across the city. 
Um, I've once heard uh, Pastor Henry McClendon of the International uh, Restorative Practice Institute say that we Detroit really doesn't have a crime problem. We have a relationship problem. And so what we're really trying to do with the outreach team is to build trust in the streets. And when we can build trust, then we can begin to see people instead of picking up guns to settle differences, actually talk to each other, actually sit down and work their differences out together. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda. I'm in studio with the Harris family. I have four members, mom, dad, and the twin teenagers across the studio from me, Amari and Amani. Uh, Welcome to Detroit Today again, Amani. I want to ask you, we've heard from your parents about their work. What what did you do today to make your community better? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I also work largely with the education but I also work um, kind of cleaning up the neighborhood. I like to do the cleanups where we, um, you know, pick up trash, board up houses. I'm really big on that because I feel like the blight takes down the self-esteem of the community. And so I hear a lot of people say, like, I can't wait to get out of Detroit. Detroit is so terrible. And it's like, if we talk about ourselves like that, you know, how do we think people outside are talking about us? And so I think a big deal is the blight and, you know, the trash in the lawns and the bushes on the ground. And so I fight equally for education and the blight because I think those are two really big things. Yeah. So Amari, I want to bring you into the conversation as well. Welcome to Detroit today. I know you're a junior at Renaissance high school. Yes. Uh, what, is, what, is, what is your role at the family dinner table? What issues are you passionate um, about? I uh, actually work very closely with the education uh, reform too. So uh, one thing I'm currently doing is uh, I work closely with a organization called 482 Forward. It is a nonprofit organization. Uh, it's built up of a bunch of smaller organizations and I actually have this summer a summer internship and what we're doing is we are gathering information. One thing 482 Forward is doing uh, all together is because we're so focused on getting education, we want to be involved in this upcoming election for the school board. And so we're trying to get as many people as we can and send out as much information as we can about the upcoming school board election. Well, so. I, I believe you can't run yet. You've got a couple more <laughs> years. But <laughs> But I'm glad to hear you're, you're helping some others and bringing the issues forward. Oh, why, Trace, I want to talk about how your your commitment to education, where it comes from. It sounds like your, your kids have it handled. Uh, are you, <laughs> what's the balance of you advocating for your own family and for your community? Um, to be honest, my commitment to education came from my mom, who is an ex-educator. Um, and so she sort of instilled it in me. I grew up just knowing that education was important. Um, and it wasn't a question. And mom taught me from the beginning um, you know, good, better, best, never let it rest till your good is better and your better is best. Um, and so that's sort of the model that I've lived my life by. Um, and so when I um, got involved in the education arena, quite frankly, um, I was one of those parents at first that was just kind of sitting in the background saying, oh, things are just so bad and sort of shaking my head. Um, and then, um, you know, we're very spiritual people, of course. And it was like a light came on in my head. God spoke and was like, so the only way this is going to change is if you get involved as well. And so I just began to look and see what organizations I could align myself with, what I could do, what, you know, I know that I have a passion for educating and for education and for seeing everyone educated at their highest peak. And if that's college, that's great. But um, even if you never go to college, you should read a book. Um, So educate yourself at your highest peak. And that's sort of what um, just what I live by. 
As you think back to when you were actually in school, what are the differences now between the education you got and how your children are in this, what they're experiencing in in the system in the schools? I think um, there are a lot of major differences. I think um, there was stability. And if I would say the main thing that is missing um, in education today, it's stability. When I was going to school, um, there were what we would call feeder schools. And so um, you started off in elementary school in your neighborhood, and then all of you and your friends went to the middle school in your neighborhood, and then all of you and your friends, unless you went to a magnet high school, all of you and your friends went to the same high school. Um, I think that's what's missing. Kids are um, missing that stability, not only in their feeder school patterns in their neighborhood, uh, but they're missing that stability even in um, their classrooms, that from year to year, they don't know where their teachers, who their teachers are going to be, who they can count on to be back. Stability is definitely what's missing. Your husband, Daryl, lit up when I asked that question, so I think he wants to answer that one as yeah. well. <laughs> um, because we went to, first of all, her advocacy for education, even though she was not formally involved, it's actually what saved my educational life. So we're high school sweethearts. I met her when I was 15. I told her I was 16. We're going to talk about that later. I know. <laughs> he told the truth. Right? Whoa. Uh, this is not cool. that kind of radio show. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, and, you know, I came from a family on my mom's side. We're eight. And none of them actually had the opportunity to take school seriously. When I met her at 15, she was always serious about school. And she kind of gave me this line upon starting dating that, you know, hey, I can't be with a dummy. And I was like, who are you calling dumb, right? <laughs> um, and so it kind of sparked something in me. So she's been doing this, you know, since I've been around. Uh, it's just more formal now. But I think she went to Cass Technical High School. I went to Osborne High School. And so they were very, two very different. And I think just the reliability, you know, it goes with stability, but the reliability. You knew who everyone was and you knew what their roles were and those roles didn't vary. You, the principal had a more of a long-term kind of setting. You know, you heard about principals and teachers and people being involved in one particular school for 25, 30 years, whereas now a lot of the administration changes overnight. Um, they've introduced a model to the Osborne High School, which, in my opinion, was a failed model when they brought it in. It's the three schools in one. Uh, and now it has done nothing. It's done very little, if anything at all, to really enhance the quality of the school. And so I just think the reliability, the young people don't know who they can really count on nowadays uh, to be there for the long haul. They can start in the ninth grade with one particular teacher. And then by the time they're in the 10th grade, they're up to three different people. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda with the Harris family. We are talking about their involvement in their community. All of them are involved in making things just a little bit better. And we're on the topic of education. That was Father Daryl and, and Mom Waitrice talking about their perspective on education, what the schools need. I want to go to Amani, who's a junior at Renaissance. Yes. So you heard your parents there. It's probably not the first time you've heard that from them. But I wonder about your educational experience. Have you had the revolving door of teachers and administrators in your school or are you luckier than that? Um, actually I have experienced that and the most recent experience um, was my English teacher who worked at my school for a very long time. I don't know the exact number of years but she had been there for a long time and my year she was like I can't do it anymore and she left I believe it was like the second or third week of school and during that time I got six um 
quote unquote permanent substitutes, except that they weren't that permanent because they all left. And I ended up with the teacher that I got in like December, just around a time for her to be able to teach us something quick and give us a final. And then I got a real teacher um, near the end of January. And so going through was that nine teachers is a lot of teachers, you know, in the span of September to January. Um, and it's like you have to learn every teaching style and how to study for a test and how to read the book to their how they want you to understand it. Because some teachers want you to read it um, thinking about the concept of the book. And some people just want you to know facts. And so that alone is really hard. Also, um, I just learned about this, but apparently we had a counselor at the school who just left in the middle of the school year. And so a lot of kids in my school did not have a counselor for the whole second semester. And so it's like, how do you change your schedule? Who do you talk to when there's a problem with the teacher? Like people, you know, they do just leave and it's really inconsistent. Um, I lost a French teacher, uh, actually lost two French teachers in my freshman year. I went through three French teachers, but I went through a whole semester without a French teacher. And for that class, I couldn't even take a final. They just gave us a project to do so they could put some type of grade in. So I didn't get a P. And so I've definitely dealt with the inconsistencies of the Detroit Public Schools. All right. Uh, Amari, do you have you had a similar experience or how are you making um, it through these kinds of challenges? Yes, I had a similar experience uh, with the English class. I didn't go through all that she went through uh, my class. Instead of what they did was instead of uh, giving us multiple subs and multiple teachers, we had maybe two of those subs for about two months and they ended up switching around the class. And so uh, we, they switched around the English elective and the class I had. And so I ended up with the actual English teacher earlier than Imani. But what did happen is uh, my Spanish teacher left and uh, it was presumably out of nowhere. And um, I it's one of those things where you don't really blame people for leaving because you always saw it coming. So my Spanish teacher was, she was a really nice lady. She taught really well, in my opinion. Not everybody liked her, but she was a teacher. So that's, you know, kind of part of the job. <laughs> well, um, go, go back a second. You said yes. you, didn't, you don't blame them for leaving. Why, yes, what do you understand was, um, about their position? Getting to that. So okay. uh, one thing was she did not have a room. So she had to basically cart around each class period to find a, to find us a different room to which she could teach in. And so, you know, and it's just one of those things where she had to cart around, you know, the first day she had to cart around these piles and piles of textbooks because she needed to give everyone their Spanish textbook. And so she was carting around piles and piles of textbooks. And then she was just carting around all her materials and all her stuff. She didn't really even have a board that she could really teach on because sometimes we would walk in and the teacher would be like, um, hey, I need to I need to keep this up on the board for the next class period. And so she had to uh, t get a notebook or giant sheets of paper and write stuff down on there. And it was just very hard to get a good learning environment for that. And when a learning environment like that is messed up, it's hard for the kids to uh, want to learn, mm -hmm. you know. And so it just very threw off the chemistry of the class. And so that was one thing. And so she left and... Uh, because they couldn't find another Spanish teacher, I ended up for my second semester, uh, most of my second semester, we had a sub. But what had to happen was they had to switch my class from Spanish to humanities because they could not find another language teacher to fill the spot. So no Spanish, but humanities <laughs> mid-semester. Yes. Okay, well, uh, I want to go to the phone. We have caller Tom on the line who has been listening to the conversation. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, good morning to all, and I, I commend, you know, uh, the parents and, this, and, the, and their children in terms of what they're doing to try and make this 
thing a better place, and I don't necessarily mean it to sound denigrating when I said thing, I meant Detroit. But, you know, in terms of education, I mean, everything starts at home. And, you know, and I've written about this, and even when I speak about it, I said, unless more people, like the two parents who are sitting there, become more involved in their children's education, this thing is like a dog chasing its tail, and it's, and God forbid, it's going to continue. But, um, you know, and, and it's not, like I said, I'm a, I'm a retired educator. And, I mean, it's not to say that if a child who comes to, comes to school is like has challenges or comes there with, you know, behind the eight ball, we, when I say once a teacher, always a teacher, we're going to do our best to make sure that that kid is just as, you know, reaches his or her potential and maybe even go beyond that potential. But, you know, you've got to have cooperation at home. Tom, thank you for that call. Um, Bishop Daryl Harris, a father here, you, you heard Tom there talking about how things do start at home, but he also raised the point of getting the parents involved. Now, I, it doesn't sound like you two needed any motivation on, on that front, but how, what successes have you had? What strategies are there to get more parents involved in their children's education like this? Well, I think that the first thing, and I'm really going to default this to my wife because she does a lot with parent engagement. Uh, From my end, it's starting through our program and through our church. We try to get a lot of people uh, communicating through the churches on how important it is to actually be a parent, a real-time, in-the-moment parent. And uh, we see a lot of that working in our congregation. And now from our end, the thing is to try to reach out to more congregations to help develop these parents. But I really want to default. Yeah, why Trace, go ahead. Right, definitely. We do it through our church and our congregation. But I also work for an organization called 42 Forward, which is an organizing group of parents, residents, and students where we come together and our whole purpose is to engage parents and get parents involved in this work. And so what we have found that works is the same thing that we have been saying is sort of the metrome of the day is relationships. So many times um, people come in and they just try to superimpose onto parents what they think their job should be or what they should be doing. Or even worse, they assume that they know why parents aren't doing or aren't engaged. Our job is to go in and figure out how can we listen to you, listen to your needs, listen to what you see the problem is, and then get you engaged and get you motivated, educated, um, organized in order to help the situation. Um, So it's finding out what is important to every parent. Because every parent that has a child, their children are important to them. All the time they just don't know how to help or they don't know the best approach. And if I could add to that, I think it's a matter of hopelessness, too. I think that many of the parents, many of the residents of this city, we face a lot of they're just they're feeling hopeless. They feel that there is nothing that they can do to impact the system anymore. And so we try to just work with them and developing Uh, motivation in the sense of you may not be able to do anything about the DPS system as a whole. You may not be able to do anything in Lansing as a whole or, you know, anything like that. But you can always impact your children directly, even if that's just 
uh, picking up a book and reading, turning off the television and having taken some time with them. We've been had since they were born. We have a one television rule. We have one television in our house. Uh, it frustrated them at the beginning, <laughs> but they got used to it because they were born with that. They'd never seen anything else until they were old enough to start going to other people's homes. We believe in sitting down and eating dinner together. We don't always get to do it because of our busy schedules, but things like that are important. Amani, what is that like, a one-television household? My goodness. <laughs> um, well, for me, it's normal because that's all that I know. But, like, when I do visit my friend's house and it's, like, one television in their mom's room and then one in their room and there's one downstairs, it's, like, I don't know. I feel like having one television forces us to watch TV together, which is not a bad thing because – you know, when I was little, um, my parents were really big on understanding that cartoons were not real. So I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of stuff like <laughs> SpongeBob because my mom's like, you can't think it's OK to be stupid. And Patrick was to her the epitome of stupid. And so she's like, we're not going to watch it until you're ready to have oh. the conversation about why this is OK. And so I think that having a one television household helped um, who I am today because it was like every t every TV show we had a conversation about. So like there was this one show called Dragon Tales and I loved it. And my mom's like, after every episode, are dragons real? Is magic real? Can they really hatch from eggs? And so <laughs> that kind of thing was normal. So now we talk about bigger, larger scale things. Like I remember we watched Selma and I cried like the entire <laughs> movie. But I knew that after we watched it, we could have a conversation about it because we were so used to doing that. All right. Well, we're going to get lit up by the SpongeBob fans out there in our audience. <laughs> now, Thanks a lot. We're gonna sorry, guys. Those, we're going to have to feel that, those complaints. But I, I want to so <laughs> come back. Your, your parents talked about getting parents involved. How, how do you see the what's the key what what's been the, your strategies uh, to getting students more involved in their own educations understanding if they can make a difference that is a really hard one because um i remember i was going to school this one day and i needed to get some um what were they called petition, petition sign and it was so hard like i would go through the host feel about like what this was for who this was for who we were going to give them to and they're like yeah, I don't think I care that much. And it's like, <laughs> this is your education and you don't care. But the the strategy for me is that I have to let them know that I'm not talking to them because I need them. It's because they need this. And so regardless of whether you sign the petition or not, I'm going to I'm going to turn it in, you know. And if your name is on it or not, if your name could have been the name to make a change, what would happen? And so it's really hard for them to grasp the situation because for instance, when the teachers were having sick outs, everyone was like, oh, they're doing this because they want to get paid. And it's like, no, that's not the issue. The issue is that we are not we are not a qualified school and we are not, you know, we're we don't have a quality education. And that's the basis. And so it's getting them to understand what's really going on versus what the media shows going on and then getting them to care. And then it's not making them feel stupid. For not knowing because a lot of times I feel like um, grown-ups will talk down because you know they're like oh well, kids won't really understand everything that's going on so they'd be like oh yeah teachers aren't getting paid you guys don't have books that's all that's happening and it's like no 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 it's so it's a larger scale than that and it's making them feel a part of the situation instead of that it's just happening to them. So Amari I want to ask mm. you as well getting uh, students involved but you know how much is on how much is on the teenagers how much is it being you know teenagers being teenagers and how much can they be motivated by other outside forces uh, to, to be um, more involved be more aware what's I'll say what's most important in getting youth involved is connecting what's going on to an issue 
in mm-hmm. what in that that they're directly dealing with. And sometimes it goes overboard. Like for sometimes that's all people will do. All people will say is, "Oh, you don't have books. That's why the teacher's sicked out." And so you have to give them a reason connected to an issue, but you have to follow it up with, "Oh, you don't have books." But also, you know, you're not getting a quality education. This this would never happen in a school that's somewhere else. So why is it happening in your school? And you have to connect the issues and their problems. And then you have to go down the scale of showing, you know, who's accountable so that they can hold that person, that uh, higher power, so to speak, accountable. All right. In the little bit of time we have left here on Detroit today, today, uh, I want to go down the line with the Harris family. We just have a couple minutes here, but I want to ask each of you as we're going into the new school year. It's that metaphor of the fresh start. Amari, what are your goals for the year? What are you going to do to make Detroit a little bit better? Uh, To make Detroit a little bit better, I'm going to start by informing as many people I can. Uh, Like you said, get as many people as I can involved, youth and adults likewise, into uh, what it is we're doing. You know, before I start making Detroit better, I want to get as many people as I can to help me out with that. And Imani, that was your twin brother. What you're, you're both juniors at Renaissance High School this year. What's on your back-to-school list? So I'm going to do two things. One thing that I am plan on doing is working with my best friend to change the environment inside of our school um, from hostile to more family-like. And the other thing that I want to do is to let people know that just because we're in this new code doesn't mean that our problems are solved. And so just because school happened this year doesn't mean everything is okay. And why trees? You're, I believe, going to get the last word here. What? <laughs> Sorry, dear. Sorry, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Her husband's in studio. That's usually as well, the way but it works. Anyway. <laughs> right. But why trees? Uh, just the short time we have here. What What are you working for this school year? Same thing. I'm piggybacking on what Imani said, and just educating people, getting as many parents involved as possible, and get them to understand what uh, is going on in the new education system that is DBS this year. All right. Thank you all so much. That's the Harris family. Waitrice, Daryl, Amari, and Amani joining us in studio as if they're at the family dinner table. <laughs> Thanks for being on Detroit today. Uh, you're Thank listening you. to the program produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Technical director, Matt Trevethan. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Thanks for being with us. The program will be here tomorrow. You're listening to WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.